I know a lot worse words than shit, you know. So do I. And where'd you get those pajamas? You're not going anywhere dressed like that. Do you like it strong? Uh, yeah, strong is good. So what do you think happens after we die? Heaven? Well, hell. Really? Yeah. Yeah, but with like angels and devils or brimstone or whatever? I don't know what it looks like, but yeah, I do believe there are consequences for the way we live our lives. Welcome to the Urban Bureau Cafe. We are a free podcast site where many speak on the subject of non-duality. We explore the meaning of existence. The primary focus is on your own clear and present evidence. The listener is not asked to believe in anything. You do not need to accept any new belief. Whatever is pointed out here, test it. See for yourself. Our guest this week is Greg Good. Greg is a teacher of non-dualism, well known for using both Eastern and Western approaches. It was through the teachings of Sri Atmananda Krishna Menon that Greg's own search came to its joyful conclusion. Greg is nationally certified as a philosophical counsellor by the American Philosophical Practitioners Association, and Greg has a private practice in New York, and he hosts non-dual dinners once a month in Manhattan. We have all heard the phrase, if a tree falls in the forest, there's a very good reason for it. Uh, no, that's not it. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Those words were written and spoken by Bishop Barclay. Greg studied Barclay at university. Barclay was the guy that this graduate seminar was about, and I chose that one not because I knew anything about Barclay, but that it was a convenient time period for me in my semester schedule. So I come to find out that he has a very unintuitive philosophy, that if the tree falls in a forest and there's no one there to hear it, that it does not make a sound. In fact, you can't even say that there's a tree there. So most people think that it's quite the opposite, that if there's a tree there, it's there because it is there. It's there in and of itself, and it may be thought or perception will go out and make contact with the tree and therefore not establish its existence, but just sort of know its existence. So Barclay turned all that around and said that for the tree to exist is for an idea to appear to a mind. And there's nothing outside of the idea that is the tree. One of Barclay's papers is a brilliant uh, dialogue between two fictitious characters. The dialogues that you referred to, the three dialogues between Hylas and Philonous, is Barclay's attempt to make this idea more um, intuitive to the general public. He, he had already published a more technical examination of that view, and there were some critiques and complaints mm. and 
people said they couldn't understand it. So he put it in dialogue form, which is much easier to understand. It has, it's actually one of the easier pieces of Western philosophy to understand. Even if you don't agree with it, it's sort of easy. It's you know people talking, kind of like you know Socrates, Socratic dialogues. Yeah. It's easy to see that the appearance is just an appearance. You can dismiss the appearance of the world, but the fact that this body here that I seem to be in is a long-standing belief that really doesn't like to be disturbed. It's really true, and I mean, you've seen it and I've seen it. It's easy for a lot of people to dismiss what seems to be the outside. They just sort of don't even question it. They sort of just stop there. And then when their dismissal or their analysis is finished, what they've ended up with is no outside but this container that they haven't looked into. Yep. And that's what they think they are. They think they're like it or like inside it or in the upper left-hand corner of it or in a little marble-sized ball in the head area of it. But if they don't analyze that, it's yeah. they've just made a smaller container. Before they had the world, now they have a, a body. Mm. So you were studying this paper in college right. or university, and can you just tell me how it affected you or how it impacted yeah. on you? The teacher was a Barclian, and he said, to get a good grade in this class, you have to write a paper in favor of Barclay because he's right. The people who challenged him were wrong. So if you want a good grade, you have to be on the side of truth. And he said this with a gleam in his eye, you know. Yeah. If, if you write a paper against Barclay, which is, of course, the ordinary way you'd think anyway, you know, you'd say Barclay's crazy, then your, your paper has to be much better because you're going against the truth. So to get a good grade, your paper has to be twice as good if it's against Barclay. So basically, we tried to write papers in favor of Barclay, but we had to study him really well to at least get a little bit of sympathetic understanding of what he's trying to say. And so as I was studying this more and more and more and more. lectures that the professor gave, and he's very, one of my best teachers, uh, Colin Murray Turbane, a fellow Australian actually, he's passed away now, but he was a very wonderful teacher of this, uh, this approach. He said something about the relationship between vision and touch, the sense of vision and touch, that they actually don't have anything to do with each other. And something in that lecture clicked, and the next time I read Barclay, I uh, read a paragraph that had to do with that same interaction between touch and vision, it clicked. I had thought that there was something in physical substance that was behind vision and behind touch and that went out and sent information to both sense modalities. That's what, sort of what I was thinking. But this point totally demolished that, that I had no right to think there was anything behind impressions at all, mm. nothing on the other side of vision. You know, there's a visual image appears and you think there's something on yeah. the far side of it. Yeah. It showed me that I have no right to think that at all. There's absolutely no evidence that there's anything like that whatsoever. And so it went whoosh. And that was at home I was reading. And I went in the next day to Turbain's office and I said, I got it. And he could see this enthusiasm <laughs> in me. And I had this gleam in my eye. He said, well, good. Now go out and tell others. And so that was his message to me. And from then on, I had not seen a physical object. The whole notion of physicality and externality just vanished. I wasn't seeing absence of physicality, it's just the whole concept, the whole structure just disintegrated. 
so that it didn't seem like there was an inside or an outside anymore. Now I hadn't, that's not the same for me as like self-inquiry, I still didn't look into what I was. But as far as what the Brooklyn Bridge is, or what a building is, or what a bicycle is, or a car accident, that ceased to be something that I saw as external and independent. So, of course, this really cuts to the core of it because even the instruction that your professor gave you to write, now go and tell others, is a paradox. It seems that something is possible through dialogue. Uh, Something happens through dialogue. We experience some sort of change through some form of communication or transmission of something, information or whatever you want to call it. And to be told to go out and share it with others when the premise is that there are no others, mm-hmm. there's just this whatever you want to call it. Um, That's why he said it with a smile. Exactly. I think it was Krishna that says, I am even the glint of light in your enemy's eye. You know, sometimes the negative or the unpleasant seems more real. You know, like your enemy seems more real than your friend, you know? Yeah. You know, when people say, get real... What they're trying to encourage you to do is accept something unpleasant. So let's come back to today, as if we could have been anywhere else than right here, right now. How does your day unfold in this sharing with others? Well, I have a day job, and any sharing is, if it's explicit, if it's you know in response to a question of someone that someone asks, it could be on the telephone, it could be email. It could be a personal dialogue. That's one kind of sharing. Another kind of sharing is just interaction, communication. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't try to, um, you know, I don't have a notion that I'm here and that you're there and that I need to tell you something. Um, but people did tell me that there was a difference when, you know, I was studying non-duality and that then I was really doing self-inquiry with the benefits of 15 years of Barclay under my belt then I started doing self-inquiry and then when certain of those things came to like a joyful conclusion people did say oh yeah you're you're chilled out you're cool you're you know unflappable things like that so in a way that's kind of like a sharing and then someone might ask well how come you're unflustered then maybe a dialogue can start so that's something else that may happen in any you know grocery store or the income tax office or the boss's office or yeah, wherever any, anyway because it, there's it brings a great joy to me to just talk about this stuff without there being a yes I know there's no me there's no joy there's no others but and there's no language to express it either so if there were I would say that it's wonderful you're listening to the Urban Guru Cafe just another miracle So, Greg, you've written some material, and uh, I believe that one of them is actually published as a book. Yes, one by legit publisher. I have an ebook, which is basically a PDF file on um, non duality in Western philosophy. I have, uh, and then another one was called Standing as Awareness, and it was picked up by Non Duality Press, and then I added a couple chapters uh, to beef that up to be a real book. 
Yeah. And so now it's doing well. People have asked, and maybe you've encountered this too, people have asked for exercises or visualizations or meditations or instructions, almost like the instruction yeah. manual for a computer, to get into this stuff yeah. more. And so there was a little bit of that in my book called Standing as Awareness, and so many people asked that I thought I would do one that is called the Tattva Podesha in uh, the direct path, which is basically from the very beginning to the very end, how each stage is deconstructed. So you could look at it as prescriptive, you could look at it, you do this and this will happen, or you could look at it as descriptive, as this is how this apparent entity is already unstable and how it deconstructs its own self. Yeah, It's already transparent, it's just the belief in its substance is seen through and it's seen through in seeming stages. Right. But it's exactly. all happening in the immediacy and that it's not really happening at all. You know, yeah. Nothing happens. Yeah. And it only seems to happen while seemingness is happening. And then when it isn't, it's sort of like when you climb over the fence, you see there was never a fence. Yeah. You know, the, the river didn't exist that you seem to have crossed. You thought there was a river, and then, yeah. psh, then the whole structure disintegrated. Yeah. And it's sort of funny. By the time that someone is able to digest one of those indigestible messages, they don't need them anymore. The dustiest day of the whole year Pull its way the whole way up here The dustiest day Pull my way Pull my way says that the mind and the body are two fundamentally independent substances. Right. And he implies that there's interaction between these two substances of some sort. It appears that there's two minds here. There's your mind and my mind. There's an assumption that something real can manifest from this. I think the stickiest, as far as people trying to uh, study non-duality or... or make it effective in their life there's something I think very sticky in what you said very uh, very relevant also and that's the idea that there's two different minds and that means that there's they're separate from each other and there's also an out a region that's outside of them <clears throat> and that's a real hard structure it's like a it's a model of thought to uh, see your way out of and I know that many 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 non-dualists even people teaching still operate according to that same structure and non-dualization just tends to be a larger mind but it still has uh, subtle borders yeah um, it's something that things are inside of just it's just bigger yeah. than a personal psychological mind and it it's like a bubble that hasn't burst yeah and so uh, I call it the metaphor of containment that thoughts are inside this mind and of yeah. course if you have one then the very possibility of having one implies that you can have more than one that's why it's I don't consider it to be non-dual that contain and whenever that I see the containment metaphor in operation it's not non-dual might seem to be because the container might be vast and huge yeah but but where there's one 
there can be two. Yeah. So the very structure, you know, the, the very fact that you can have borders. So that's a hard one to get out of. It's a really, really hard one. Sometimes, <laughs> isn't it impossible? <laughs> <laughs> I think that sometimes it has to be looked at directly. Like the, if there's a teaching, teaching could bear on that very point. You know, so actually attack Descartes, attack the attack the model, just attack the whole structure that he proposed. But I, I find the notion of containment that I'm in this as a, a serious and very common barrier to this non-dual understanding. Also assuming that people have the notion that they want understanding, they want non-dual understanding, and they can get it. In that whole model, I find that the containment metaphor is one of the last to go. When we see through the structure or the containment, where are we seeing from? You know, I ask the question, where are you truly seeing from? So let me ask you that question, where are you seeing from? Well, the where and the structure arise together. If there were no structure, there wouldn't be the sense of where. It can be a good way to get a person to see that that where can't be answered the same, you know, like I'm seeing from inside of a bottle. No. There's no direct evidence that there's any where at all mm. in seeing. You look it's, for a boundary, yeah, and no boundary is part of your direct experience whatsoever. And then you're left with just the seeing. And no, not even an entity that's and, doing the seeing. Right. And then you can go from there. That's what you know, Sri Atmananda does. He works back. Once you have the seeing, it's its own object. It's not a geometrical object, but it's an object of thought or an object of awareness. And then he works back from there to pure consciousness. So if you can get to seeing without seeming like you're seeing something, that's wonderful. That's mm -hmm. a wonderful step to have deconstructed the location, you know. Um, you know, people think they're seeing from inside a skull or inside a brain or inside a mind, but there's no proof of anything like that at all. They might visualize a mind and a, a thought bubble coming out of it, or they might visualize an eye with a ray of light coming out of it, or a you know geometrical line coming out of it connecting to the tree or whatever. But there's nothing like that going on at all in direct experience. <laughs> That's right. You're listening to the Urban Guru Cafe. Our guest this week is Greg Good. Greg, you hold sort of informal meetings in a diner in Manhattan. Tell us about that. That was an outgrowth of the uh, many satsang teachers that used to come to New York City in the mid-90s. So some of us just got together and gathered on our own and we went to a restaurant it was just a free open conversation with no leader no no agenda no dominant view friends just sharing in, in pleasure and wonder and with a, maybe a you know common interest in something called non-duality but it was very vague and undefined and so it's been going on for 12 years every month or more and sometimes there have been as many as 20 people sometimes as few as just me and one other person eating nachos, you know. It's a place where people can come and they get a voice. Sometimes you go to like a regular satsang, you have to listen and someone yeah. else is talking. But this is where everybody has sort of like a democratic, egalitarian voice. Yeah. And we've noticed sometimes we have little uh, planned speakers, you know, for like uh, 
10 minutes, 20 minutes, someone will talk about something, attendance goes up because most people do want to hear something. Yeah. Sometimes people come and they want it to be their satsang. And they want to be the teacher. Yeah. So, so both of those people end up being disappointed and not coming back. <laughs> we had a spiritual teacher, of one of the spiritual teachers who want to be other people's teacher come. Yeah. <laughs> and he was the only person in like 12 years who left without paying his own check. <laughs> Great. Can't trust those guys. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone who's got an agenda, they're insisting that they are the container, the containment, and they're important, and they will embrace you and take you in and hug you and kiss you, and everyone will be happy and live forever in love and happiness. Right, and that your realization consists of you being accepted into their container. Yeah. That's your goal. It, yeah. It's so obvious and so self-centered. But it's it's still pretty prevalent. And I, I think it has its roots in some of the way that uh, the Indian teachings have come to the West. Because there's the bhakti tradition, you know, where you worship um, a guru figure or you worship... Uh, it could be a deity or it could be the instantiation of the deity, like the avatar figure, you know, a big famous guru. And so there's that tradition. There's also the wisdom tradition where the teacher is the preceptor of wisdom. They're passing on wisdom, but they're not necessarily the focus of your wisdom. So in the satsang tradition, it's like a combination of both those traditions in one. So the person up in front of the room is at once the ones dishing out the wisdom. You know, They're telling you how it really is, and they'll say that it's this, and they'll sort of like point to themselves or the gift that was given to me. And so it motivates people to approach them. You know, sometimes people fight to be in the first row. And so that creates this whole, uh, you know, we're back to geometry. It's back to, mm. I'm closer to this individual up here. Wisdom is, seems like it's located. It seems like it's closer to the front of the room. I don't think it's all that obvious. If you see it, it's obvious. And then it never, you never forget it. It never becomes mysterious again. But I think uh, it's still prevalent in teachings. Yeah. I mean, one of these gurus that, that I used to see, it was so entertaining at the time, but um, he says, you can't get there. The, the gift that Papaji gave to me, I am offering to you, but you cannot get there unless you submit. You must submit. Yeah. Uh, he didn't say, like, he used to stop there. Yeah. He sort of looked with a self-satisfying smirk on his face, you know? <laughs> you can imagine, like, sitting back, folding his arms, right? Yeah. And then somebody raised their hand, but, but what should we submit to? And then he leaned forward, spread his arms out wide, and said, Well, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> oh, savior, savior. He's out of the business now. So. Yeah, we sat and had drinks together one time. He was already out of the guru business. He was actually one of the more insightful, like self-aware gurus. Because yeah. he did this with a, with a kind of like ironic twist. He knew very well what he was doing. You know? yeah. He told me later that once... I stopped believing that I was enlightened and everybody else wasn't. Then all the fun went out of giving satsang. <laughs> Thanks for being our guest, Greg. 
You have been listening to The Urban Guru Cafe. The Urban Guru Cafe is produced in Australia. Tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive and I begin to panic. Has anyone ever tried to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, here, here they are. Stop it! <laughs> S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. I'm sorry? Stop it! So, what are you saying? 